0: Jude, we're going to look at three and four today, but I'm going to read the first four verses in case you weren't here last week. We'll put all that together. Jude, verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It has been stated over and over in this day and time, and it's become pretty clear that for much of our culture, there's an embracing of unrealistic truth. There's a rejection of what we would call absolute truth. People pretty are pretty firm about that and and and... And those who hold to false teaching and false truth and lies that are connected to our culture and sometimes have even drifted into the church um, have lost their way. And so Jude is dealing with this subject matter which I believe is very relevant to us in our day and time. The truth has become in our day and time something that is not solid. It's become fluid, just changing out of whim based on the feeling or the need of the moment for many people. But truth is not something that varies. Biblical truth is not that. Jesus himself said he came to bear witness to the truth. And so as the church at large in the first century, as we are existing in the church in the 21st century, the attack then and the attack now upon truth has continued... Not mainly from outside the church, but the greater danger is honestly what is being taught and said inside the church. Now as Jude writes this, Nero is on the throne of Rome. He is putting great pressure upon Christians at that time. And there was great, great pressure from the outside of the church trying to get it to conform and change its ways. But by the time Jude writes this... Under the leadership of Nero, the greater danger was not from the outside of the church and the pressure that was there. It was what was happening on the inside of the church through teaching. People have become good in our day and time at justifying anything to feel a certain way. And they have abandoned what's called biblical truth For things that are lies. Would you agree with me that we see this around us today? So this book is pretty heavy in its content, but so incredibly practical for where we are today. This is why Jude wrote the letter to address this. And I'm grateful that this is where he stood. This was Paul's great heart for the church that he spent the majority or the most time of all of his ministry with the church in Ephesus. In Acts 20, verse 29, he tells them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves, Paul tells them, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So he says to them, Therefore, you have got to be alert as leaders in the church. Remembering that for three solid years, Paul tells them, that I did not cease during the daytime and during the nighttime and to admonish you with tears that flowed out of my eyes that you must remain true to the truth of Scripture. So Jude is dealing with salvation only by faith in the Lord. But for all around Jude and around the churches, there were apostates seeking to teach certain things to tear down the truth about coming to faith in Jesus. We face the same kind of struggles today where we are considered very narrow-minded and sometimes even by some government entities have labeled Christians in certain perspectives as extremists. As we speak of and stand on the truth that Jesus is the only way And that the scripture is the truth because the scripture has come from the Holy Spirit. It is, it is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the scripture and he is the truth. Now, one of the most encouraging things that has been a part of my life for a while, and I want to begin our time this morning and our introduction in this way. So when Jesus was born, he grew up in Nazareth and the time came for him to start his public ministry, he went to John the Baptist, he was baptized by John, and Jesus begins his public ministry. He eventually gets 12 men around him, and he pours his life into modeling to them what they were to do when he leaves as they start the church, the beginning initial church in Jerusalem, and then as they leave and they are scattered and they begin to start churches everywhere. For three solid years, Everywhere they went with Jesus, they saw one driving thing that was connected to Jesus. He modeled for them what they were to do in the future. So, let me share some verses. You won't have time to keep up because I'm a faster reader than you and you can't turn and keep up. So, just listen to this the model in which they saw things. Matthew seven twenty four. 24, Everything, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew 11, verse 1, and when he had finished instructing, teaching his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Mark 4, 1, and he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered around him. So that he got into a boat and he sat on it in the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Mark 10 verse 1. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, listen to this. As was his custom, he taught them. He taught them. He spoke the truth. Luke 4 verse 15. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Luke 19, 48, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So all of this teaching ministry for three years was modeled to the 12. So it's natural to understand that they were to continue in this. As a matter of fact, I think you know this well, it's one of my favorite texts. Luke chapter 24. On the greatest day of the greatest days in the history of the world, God had been put into a tomb on a Friday and he came out of the tomb on Sunday. Do you know what he spent that initial resurrection day doing? Walking with two guys to the city of Emmaus, walking through every Old Testament passage, explaining to them the things about his life. They get to Emmaus, Jesus goes in with them, He breaks the bread. They realize we've been with Jesus all day and he disappears. They hurry back to Jerusalem to tell the 12 or the 11 now, we've been with the Lord all day and then he shows up in the room. And do you know what he does the rest of the night? He teaches them from the Old Testament texts about himself. So it's no wonder when you read the book of Acts, guess what they did? They taught. This is what they did. So, again, because I'm way better reader and faster than you, just listen. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts 5.42. Every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching That the Christ is Jesus. Acts 8.40. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Acts 14.6. And they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycanea, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. By the way, that's Paul's first missionary journey. In every city, guess what he did? He would go into the city. He would enter into the synagogue. He would reason from the Old Testament scriptures about the Christ, and then he would speak to the Gentiles. That was his model in his first missionary journey. When they got back at, back to Antioch and they began to evaluate the first missionary journey, guess what they decided with the second missionary journey? There was nothing really needed to be changed. So on his second missionary journey, in Acts 17, 2, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And at the very end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison, and this is how Acts ends. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ without boldness and without hindrance. This was the model. By the way, I want to set forth this morning. Those of you who have been a part of our church for a long time. If you're visiting today, you can kind of get an idea about what we're about. We are about the word of God at this church. It's what we're about. We are to be about What the apostles were about. We are to be what the Old Testament prophets were about. The proclamation and speaking of God's revelation through word that has come from his heart. And as the church was established through the ministry of the apostles, we'll see in a little bit, that the Holy Spirit gave them these things to speak and to establish. And so we practice what they practiced, And we do so because they learned it from the Lord Jesus. And so three years into the church's existence, in the first century, the church was under tremendous attack. Jesus talking to Pilate at the end of John chapter 18 says, For this reason I came to bear witness to the truth. Three decades into the church, it is under attack inside the church, greater than attack from outside the church, though both were happening. So Jude, wanting to write initially to encourage these Christians in regard to the common salvation that they had, all the unique things that are true about our salvation. And boy, we could spend all day talking about that. The Spirit kind of, you ever had one of those letters you feel like you need to write and you start writing it and you tear it up? and you, Or now if it's on the screen, you just hit the delete button and over and over. And it's kind of like Jude was wanting to write something and he couldn't get there, and eventually he recognized, I've got to write something different. There's something that the Spirit has laid on my heart, and that was that we would know the truth, we would stand in the truth, and that we would contend for the gospel. So look in verse 3 again. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, he's saying, to write about something else appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Some of us grew up with traditions in our lives um, that use doctrines or certain passages or text in the scripture wrongly. And one of the things that I want to just remind you and I of this morning, if you grew up in a setting or in a place like that or a denomination like that or maybe just a church like that, we have to be very careful because one of the ways that false teaching enters into the church is that we, because something was used, we swing far too far to the other side. And so I want to remind us with, with everything always, we settle in with what the text actually says. So we don't overreact, we don't add to, we don't take away from, we rest in what the text says about things. So this letter from Jude to us and to the first century Christians is our call to join together in the truth war that is being waged today. And again, while Jude had an idea that he wanted to to encourage these Christians to write about all the unique things that are connected to our salvation, the Spirit wanted him to do something different. And so this book is dealing with something called apostasy. So let me give you a definition of apostasy. It's not a, a A complicated definition in in today's church lingo in the 21st century it's called deconstructionism. It's where people deconstruct, they tear down their faith. We can put whatever label we want to put on it. The Bible calls it apostasy, and this is what it is. Apostasy is those who at one point in time in their life embrace the truth about who Christ is and now have turned their back on that truth and have walked away and are drawing others and attacking others who believe in the truth of what is right doctrine and biblical teaching and trying to get others to turn away from that. It's called apostasia in the Greek. And it's those who intentionally reject and turn away from the faith that we know as Christianity and the biblical doctrine connected to Christianity. It's the same idea that you know of, if you remember, in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews talks about there. He he says it twice, that there are people there who have tasted. They have tasted things about faith, but then they've rejected it. They've they've gone away. And then Jesus in John chapter 6 says the same thing. Remember John chapter 6, so there's Hebrews 6, there's John 6, where, where Jesus has this teaching about you are to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people are like, whoa, 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 you're crazy. You've kind of gone too far. And if you remember in John chapter 6, many of those who were following, not the 12, but many of those who were following, they quit following because they're like, we don't like this teaching. And the point of Hebrews 6 and the point of John 6 is this Christianity, yes, we taste. But it's more than that. It is taking in. The people in Hebrews 6 were in and around the faith, but they walked away from the faith and they turned away with it, from it because they never took in, they never ate, they never drank the fullness of the gospel and believed in Christ. And so the point of what Jude is dealing with here is that there will be people like that. Hebrews 6 people, John 6 kind of people, and other false prophets who will work their way into Christianity and even the church. And they will teach things where people taste things and people will get excited about things. And ultimately, because there's no substance there, there's a seed that was planted there, but there never was a root. Y'all remember the parable of the seeds? Only one produced fruit. Only one did. There was robbery. There was pressure of giving in and walking away. So Jude is calling the church to this reality. Now, I've framed all of our points this morning around the word loved ones. And so here's the first point this morning if you're taking notes as far as official outline. I want to talk first of all about the loved ones of God. So Jude just starts verse 3 with one word. He says, beloved, this is a word rich in meaning. It's a word from the Greek word agape, agape. God's kind of love, the unconditional love of God. We are the ones, if you have come to faith in Christ, we are the ones that are loved by God. We have come into a relationship with Him and we are loved by Him. And because we are the loved ones of God, we are to live knowing the truth, standing in the truth, fighting for the truth, and contending for it. We are, as local church members to gather together, to submit our lives to the truth of the Scripture. And so as Jude uses this word, he expresses his pastoral heart for this group of people. He loved these Jesus followers. And as one who loved them, his great desire was that their lives would stay, remained in the truth. That they would be protected in the faith that they had come to know. And that they would fight, listen to this, for the purity of the faith that they knew. So Jude writes here from a place of great tenderness to this group of people that he loved. Now let me just say this before we move on to point two in our outline this morning. I want you, please hear me, everybody listen to me. If you're listening to me, say, I'm listening. I want to remind you this morning of something absolutely Astounding. For those of us that belong to Jesus, we are the beloved. We belong to him. We are loved. We are absolutely secure in him. We can't mess that up. We are, Jude talked about it last week, we are kept by Jesus and for Jesus. We are his. We are his. But there's a reality in our day and time because of our great love for God's Word, and because of our great love for the glory of God, that we will be seen. Listen, everybody listening? We will be seen as unloving by our culture. We will stand in the truth. We will stand for truth. People will be living some kind of lifestyle, have some kind of worldview. They will be saying something, and we will say, no, no, That's not the truth. The truth comes from a loving God who sent his son and who was a speaking God and he revealed himself in words and in text and we will take our stand there and people will call us unloving. And we just need to recognize that that's just going to be a reality. Now listen, we can love people who are caught up and entrapped and enslaved by sin, who espouse things that mock God, we, we can love them and still speak the truth. And we must. We have no thing. We have other choice but to do that. We don't take away from the teaching of Scripture, right? We can't do that. So we can take our stand and take our stand to be loving. I believe... Being loving is speaking the truth. And it should be done from a heart of humility. And we should want truth for others. Students in the room, elementary students, high school, university, whatever. This world that you are growing up in and you will eventually lead the church in. See, I'm, I, eventually, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with my Savior, and I, I don't want to deal with people anymore. I love people, but I want to get to Jesus. Is I want to get to Jesus. I want to get to Jesus. And you young generation, you're going to be leading the church. Some will you will be standing in, in pulpits like this someplace in the world or here in America, and you will be proclaiming the truth from Scripture. If you're going to go to a university somewhere or if you're in another school or you're working somewhere, you're going to have professors and other adults who have agendas contrary to what you've been taught at this church and what your parents teach you. It's a reality of this world. It will be there and they will espouse some kind of belief system that you haven't heard about, you never thought about, and they will challenge you. And your stance with that will be called stupid. It will be called narrow-minded. It will be called foolish and a waste of time. And I want to encourage you that when you go away, to not, a, not abandon the relationships that you have here at this church. One of my most fun things during the week is to get a text from some of our college students saying, hey, what do you think about this? Can you, can you answer this question? And I love at midnight getting those because that's college students. They never sleep. That's when I get them usually is at midnight or after. Dilla Vanskyuk is great at sending those really late. And he's always got, he's always got biblically sound great questions as he's wrestling with the truth. Students, you need people in your life who stand for the truth of God's word And are willing to pray for you, walk with you, answer your questions. You've got to find people who are of the beloved of God. Who are willing to invest in your life. Because the challenges, I believe, are not going to get any easier. They are increasing if you haven't looked around lately. So I just remind everybody in the room this morning. Let us never forget. Our culture will attack And it will do a number of different things. But it can never remove the label that we are the beloved of God. That God is for us. He is not against us. Here's the second principle that Jew teaches us. The loved ones have a unity of salvation. And so that's what he writes there. He says, beloved, although I was, in the second part of verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about our common Salvation. This word "eager" in the Greek is a word that means to make speed or to hurry up at something. And so, so, so Jude wanted to write about the great news about our salvation, all the things that are connected with it. And yet, the Holy Spirit—he was eager to do that. The Holy Spirit, no, tap the brakes on that. We need to address something else. And in this passion and what he was hearing and what he was knowing. Um, the Spirit led him to write about what we are reading in this letter from him, and so as Jude writes this, he doesn't focus on some kind of disagreement, but he reminds them that there are there are common themes and things and truths, belief systems that we must never compromise on. Now, there are some nuances and beliefs about things about end times or some other things where. People have some different views and, and people in those camps love Jesus just as much as the person in another place. And so, so, but there are some things that, listen to me, we cannot ever compromise on. Cannot. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and things of that nature. We cannot. Is the scripture truly the word of God? We cannot compromise on that. For if it's not, how do we how do we even know how to navigate anything as the church if the scripture isn't true? So we've got to we've got to have some common themes, things that are connected that we must truly embrace. So we at this church here have a doctrinal statement. It's connected. We are a Southern Baptist church. And so we have a set of doctrine that guides what we believe about things and and who we are. As a church, and so there are things in our faith that we must have unity about these things. When when Jude uses this word "common," it means open to all, something that all believers share everywhere. It is the picture of a partnership, a proclaiming and living for certain things. We know this. Paul wrote in Ephesians four five. We have one Lord, we have one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and all. So we are the loved ones of God. The loved ones of God have a unity in their belief about who Christ is and how we are called to walk in him. Thirdly, we are to be the kind of people that communicate this unity, this doctrine, this belief with one another. We are to talk about this. And so Jude says, listen, I was eager to write to you about this. And then I found it necessary now to write appealing to you about something else. And so there is a communication that is to drive us as a church. And it's not not anything other than the scripture. That's what's to drive the church. That's what's to be our motor and our fuel of proclaiming and living and being guided by the truth That is in the written text of scripture. And so the loved ones, we communicate this and encourage one another, admonish one another in this. And so Jude writes, although I was very eager to write to you, writing is a form of communication. The next thing I found it necessary to write, communication appealing to you. And he's saying this, this task was my, now my priority to you. I didn't have a a bigger priority than to write what the Spirit was leading me to write to you. This word necessary in the Greek means to compress, to push something down and to make it tight, put it together. It's, It's the idea that he was now had been pressed into his heart and into his life and into his mind and into his mission and into his calling that now he was under divine pressure of God that he had to write what he was to write. He needed to communicate this and and make this. He he had been constrained by God by a compelling obligation now to deal with what was doctrinally right. Ezekiel felt this. Listen to this. This is Ezekiel chapter 3. God speaking... Ezekiel says, at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give warning from me. So if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die and you give no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood, Ezekiel, I will require at your hand. If I've told you to warn them and you don't warn them and they continue in it and they die in that, Ezekiel, I'm holding you responsible for that. And then verse 19, but if you warn the wicked and he doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul, Ezekiel. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and then commits an injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood, Ezekiel, I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin... He shall surely live because he took warning and you will have delivered your soul. I have been here coming up on 14 and a half years. This week I was, talking, I was in a group of people and we were talking about Evan's middle school days off El Dorado, church in a trailer thinking about the history of the last 14 and a half years. And I, I, I hope and pray that if you've been here all of that time or for part of that time or you're new in that, that you know this, that my greatest longing is for you to know God and to walk obedient with him and to live this freedom life that he gives to people. And the only way for that to happen and take place is that we never compromise in what's proclaimed on this campus, in a home, in a small group, in a life group, on a mission trip. That we never do that. That we, myself, Mark, and our elders fill the weighty responsibility that we have been called watchmen of God to lay before you. Listen, hear this. What the text actually says. So that we all have to deal with what the text actually says. Not man's opinion about things. But what does God's heart, loving heart say, even if it's a heavy text. Listen, every heavy text and demanding text has come from the God who in every part of his nature is good. Every part of his nature is good. So in every one of those texts. He has behind it his loving good nature that we would know righteousness and never find ourselves enslaved or moving toward the road of wickedness. And throughout the years here, I have come alongside people for the last 14 and a half years who have said, I need help. And you come alongside them and you teach them things and, and, uh, Some have said, yes, I'm going to follow what the scripture says. And they've had a joyous life. God has brought restoration. And some of them I still see from time to time. That 10 years ago I poured my life into them. And some of you poured your life into them. And their lives are still a a mess because they've walked away from walking under the authority and the freedom that comes from knowing the truth. Paul felt this. I've said it many times, but this is again words from his heart to the church leaders in Ephesus. Acts twenty thirty one. He says, "Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease not a day to admonish every one of you with tears." For those who have a heart of a shepherd, shepherds care. They lose sleep. They're stressed. They're burdened. They get emotional. They can be annoying with saying the same thing over and over to their sheep, reminding them. Paul felt this heaviness of this call as well. He writing to the church in Colossae in verse 28 and 29, he says, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That we would be able to present everyone that we've taught and poured our lives into mature in Christ. And then Paul writes in this verse, For this toil, in this great work, he says, struggling with all of God's energy that is in me, that he powerfully works within me. He felt the heaviness of this. Before we move on to point four, I need to say this. If a church has a truth problem, then that church is in crisis mode. It's in crisis mode. For that is the last thing that a church should be struggling with is truth. We don't have another place to look but here. And I love what we do here at the church. Um, Early in my ministry, I didn't know what to do when I was much younger. I became a youth minister at age 20. I've been doing this for a long time now, almost four decades. Early on, I didn't know what to do, but I love what we do here. When today is over with, I don't have to go to my office tomorrow and try to be self-creative to figure out what we ought to talk about next week. God has already told me what we are to talk about, and it's in the text. So we just go to the next verses. And until I die, and I will one day, did I tell you that I'm going to Jesus? I'm going to Jesus. And when I no longer have an opportunity to proclaim from this Scripture, then I will not be able to proclaim verse by verse from the Scripture. But until, as long as I'm breathing, until I'm with Him, this is what we do. This is what we do. And we don't compromise upon it. Truth is to be our sole mode of communication. For we are to sing about it. We are to love in the truth. We are to teach it, we are to pray in the truth, and we are to preach the truth. Here's the fourth thing. This is the theme of Jude. Loved ones participate in the great fight for truth. So look what he says in the end of verse 3. He's writing, appealing to them that they would contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now this is a rich word. This word faith here, or this, this contend. This word contend is a rich word. It means to give strong effort. And even more than that, it means to, to kind of agonize with this. So this is a calling upon our lives. If you're 10, if you're 16, if you're 20, you're 70, we are to fight for and contend for what is the truth. And we are to be eager and earnest ...and swift about this. That's the idea with this word of contending. That we would be swift about it, quick about it. Now this Greek word for contend... ...means to strive, contend earnestly. It's where we get our, word, our English word agony from. The Greek word pictured a big stadium. Think of the Roman Colosseum. And people gather in the Roman Colosseum... ...and there on the floor of the Colosseum... Uh, ...a warrior comes out to do battle... Whether it's against lions or another soldier or to represent some battle of the past. It's a picture of one fighting, striving, contending for what is true and right. And that's the word that Judas is using here. So he's calling the church to consider the cost. To agonize for the glory of the truth of Christ. The big battles of our faith are not won by sitting around on the couch or skipping church. The big battles of our faith are won when we engage in the war in great effort by standing in the truth and knowing what the truth is. Peter wrote wrote kind of the same theme in his first letter. Listen to this, you'll you'll know know this one, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, listen, he says, Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's what Peter says. We contend, we agonize for the truth in a culture that we look around with that is so definitely confused about what truth is. We contend lovingly, patiently, standing, speaking, singing, sharing, building relationships with people to share the gospel with them. And we do so, Peter says, by placing Jesus on the throne of our hearts. Peter says, but in your hearts you honor Christ the Lord as holy. You place Christ solely on the throne. Secondly, you are prepared by knowing him and knowing the word. You're prepared to talk about your faith. Now listen, some of us have convinced ourselves that we can do no good sharing the gospel or communicating truths of, of, of the gospel. And I want to encourage you that that is not true. You can know the tenets of our faith that are to be uncompromising and you can communicate those things to co-workers or to a parent or to a brother or to a friend Yes, we can learn those things and, and let us not buy the lie of the enemy that we, that we cannot be effective of knowing what our faith is and being able to communicate it. Are y'all with me? We can do that and we can encourage people. So we are to contend. So Peter says, you, you put Christ on your throne of your heart and, and as you do that, you are prepared to defend and you are prepared to, to defend because you know what you believe. And so Jude, here, saying the same thing, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Our current culture is one of great despair and uncertainty. And in stark contrast to our current culture, as Christ followers, we are to not be that way. We are not to live in despair. We are to live in great hope and to stand in that hope and to communicate that hope. And maybe what's lacking today is true and honest commitment and conviction in the lives of Christians. The kind of conviction and trust and faith in Jesus that moves believers beyond convenience and into a wholehearted life of serving the Lord. And as His people, we are to be well aware of what is going on in the church and outside of the church, what is being taught, And all of those things. This is an important statement I'm about to say. Christ's followers do not just sit by and let the world's ways infiltrate the church. With the aim of that to destroy the very foundations of our ministry and of Christianity. Now I remind you the church will prevail. Jesus said the gates of hell are not going to win. But do not think for a minute that the great enemy of our faith, Satan, is not going to do everything that he can to chip away and try to collapse the church in the West. So we as believers, instead, we long for the ministries of the church to be saturated more and more with Jesus. What does the student ministry need more than anything else? You know what it needs? It needs more of Jesus. What does our gathering on Sunday mornings need more than anything else? It needs more of Jesus. And the only way we're going to get more of Jesus is to proclaim He who was the living incarnate Word, who is the fulfillment of the text of Scripture. That we proclaim that and therefore He is proclaimed And he is honored. And so as we speak about contending, agonizing for the faith, it is absolutely critical for us that we understand when we talk about faith here, this is not just I place my faith in Jesus. That's not the idea that Jude's using here. He's talking about that our faith has a certain set of beliefs that cannot be compromised at all. So when we speak about it, we are referencing true doctrine. John MacArthur said this, Tragically, there are many in the contemporary church who also lack spiritual discernment. Such people are far better at staying in tune with the cultural trends than they are at appreciating and understanding biblical doctrine. In some cases, whole churches have shifted their focus from the clear teachings of Scripture to the felt needs of sinners. They want to make the church service comfortable and non-confrontational. As a result, the messages they champion are theologically weak and the people they serve are doctrinally naive. These churches are defenseless against error. Now, I've told you that in this walk through this, I was going to give some living examples so that you don't know that I'm just making up stuff. Y'all know that I'm not making up stuff, right? That this is happening out there. One of the larger churches in our area within a, probably about an eight-mile radius of our location here Several months ago, back in the fall, shifted their belief system about sexuality. And this this church has several thousand people that um, come through it on the weekend. And this is what they write, and I want you to hear this if you want to if you want to understand how how does this false teaching drift into a church that probably has a lot of people that do know the truth. Here is what they write about sexual orientation. We believe that in God's good and perfect creation, and I'll stop here in a moment and and point out some things that they've added to this that the text of the scripture doesn't speak of. We believe that in God's good and perfect creation, man and woman were created with heterosexual orientations. That's what they write. God did not create Adam and Eve with orientations. Are you all with me? So this is how false teaching enters into the church. And we're joined together by God in the institution of marriage for the purpose of their mutual well-being and fruitful procreation. Unfortunately, because of the fall, some individuals, now listen to this, whether through nature or nurture, develop a same-sex orientation which they do not choose. Let me tell you what that sentence means is this, is that God creates some people as homosexual so that when they stand before Him, they can say, well, you made me this way. And they're not accountable for their sin because God created them with this orientation. Then they write, we do not believe this state is sinful in and of itself, nor does it diminish the image of God within him, within them or His love for them. However, our interpretation of Scripture prohibits same-sex behavior And this prohibition is without exception. Therefore, a gay or lesbian believer who wants to live a a faithful life... I want you to listen to that sentence. Therefore, a gay or lesbian believer who wants to live a faithful life under God is called to remain unmarried and celibate throughout his or her life, trusting in Jesus and His church for their companionship and support. We recognize that there are earnest and faithful believers who have a different biblical interpretation regarding this issue. They affirm that two believers can live faithfully under God in a committed, monogamous, same-sex relationship. While this is not our conclusion, we respect and love these brothers and sisters, and they are welcomed in our church family. When it comes to leadership in our church, individuals who are single and celibate, regardless of their sexual orientation can be called to serve in any capacity in the church. That includes pastor. So I share that with you so that you know that this is happening all around our conservative Collin County in churches. This is being taught and this is being allowed. So Jude is saying to faithful believers... This must not be the case with you. We contend for the faith. How do we know what the faith is? Well, we don't make it up on our own, and we don't adjust it thousands of years later to meet a cultural movement or idea and feeling and confusion that permeates our culture. We don't change things. We we hold to the faith that came through the prophets and the apostles that has now been entrusted. To us. Now it's interesting what Jude writes here. We are to contend for this faith. Look what it says there that was once for all, one time, not a second time, not a third time, not a fourth time, that was once for all delivered to the saints. This word faith again is used 38, the word faith is used 38 times in the New Testament. Half of them talk about faith of believing in Jesus as salvation, the other half talk about a set of doctrine that the church is. To believe. It's a complete set. It's, it's, it's this idea of we're not waiting on new, new books. We don't need a new book. We've got everything that we need. We don't need new sentences. We have what we need in the scripture. Here's what Paul said. Listen to this. Ephesians 3, 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, listen to this, by the Spirit. There's a big movement today in the West, and particularly here in America, to discount what the apostles wrote. And that movement is it comes from this, this desire that culture, that, that the church needs to adjust to culture. Because people are turning away from the church and, and they're seeing us as narrow-minded and in, in things of that nature. Listen, I just want to say this, and I want to be firm on it. We are, we are to listen to the ones to whom it was given by the Holy Spirit. These books, these letters, these things that have come to us, we are to listen to them. Not, so, not some new movement in the 21st century Or some new teaching. I can promise you in 2023 there will be a new one that rises. And there will be conferences that church leaders will flock to in cities to go listen to it. And we'll be here going word by word by word. Phrase by phrase. Sentence by sentence. Verse by verse. Chapter by chapter. Book by book. Until we breathe no more. It's not a complicated choice if the leadership is there and if the people, you, demand that of us, right? You should demand that of us. We should not want you to not want that. And you should not ever want us who teach here, not just from the platform, to say anything else other than the scripture. I love what Jude says here. It was delivered once for all. We are not still getting new revelation that is equal to Scripture. We're not. We've been given what we need. Timothy was told to guard what had been entrusted to him. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard of the deposit, entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He says, Timothy, don't buy into it. Some people, he says, and for by professing it, teaching this, listening to it, learning it, some have swerved from the faith. And if you and I do not protect the faith, then we will ultimately have nothing to proclaim. If we do not fight for it and stand in it, this is a faith That is settled. I believe Christianity is a faith that is settled. We're not, again, we're not waiting for new revelation. We've been given what we need. And I love this. Listen to this. Hear this. And we're, we're wrapping things up here. This was, Jude says, delivered. This word in the Greek means this it means to come to somebody and to hand something off to someone. So it came from the Spirit. To the apostles, they handed it to other church leaders. And here we are, praise God, that in the last 2,000 years, there have been faithful people like you and I who have continued to embrace the truth of God and hand it off to people so that there is faithful teaching about who Jesus is and what he asks of us. It's the same word that is seen here. Second Timothy one thirteen. follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Second 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Romans 16.7, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. Titus nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It is clear in the New Testament, the apostles' teaching is the authoritative message. It is is an ever-increasing reality of the difficulty that comes of maintaining a full heart for the whole Scripture in our day, even in the church. For those that are probably 30 years old and younger in the room today, you have never lived in the time when the media and other mainstream entities have rejected absolute truth more than what has been in your lifetime. And to see it mocked. For those of you who are at the young age of myself and older, we would have to go all the way back to another time when there was, there was a belief about that, that there was still a, a bit of certainty about what is true. And one of the great battles today is not just the, listen to this, the relativism of our culture, but the great battle is the relativism that is in the church. That's the great battle. I'm not afraid of our government. If our government eventually gets so crazy that they come after Christians. It's happened a lot throughout the last 2,000 years. My greater concern is that somebody would ever come in and steal away what's authentic faith. And we'd get caught up by it. I don't think we would put up with it very long here. Do you agree? I don't think we would put up with it long. But I tell you, people through the years have here. They've visited this church. I've gone to coffee with them, gone to lunch with them. Or they've been here for a while, and they've wanted us to change things that are at the heart of our belief system, what, what we know the Scripture to teach. And I see them still, because I've been here a long time, and they're still trying to influence people into false teaching. And they've been run out of a number of churches as well throughout the years, which I'm thankful for. Listen to me. The Bible is God's final revelation. We are not waiting for something new. Remember what Jesus said at the end of Revelation 21? Do not add to this book. Don't, don't add. Do not take away. Do not do that. The, the point is what? Embrace it as it is written. Embrace it. That's where you are settled. So the great danger of the church with relativism relativism is that right doctrine becomes irrelevant. Look at verse 4. Just a couple of thoughts and we're finished. We're going to come back to this more next week, but I'm just going to touch on these things. So he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They were ungodly people, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Every imposter <clears throat> needs to be exposed for who they truly are if there's a hidden agenda. So there are five things here that we're going to delve into deeply. Uh, Becca, we, we won't go through all of these. Probably I, we're going to kind of pause here. Um. But here they are real fast, okay? But you don't have to write them all down. These people sneak in and they settle in among true believers. Secondly, they were predicted from long ago that they would respond this way and they would have this role. They ultimately have zero interest in the things of God. They are ungodly people, Jude calls them. They aim to alter the message of the gospel of grace. This is what Jude says. They pervert the grace of God. They not only alter it, But he says this, but they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, into fulfilling the fleshly desires. And then lastly, it says they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They say no no to God basically at every turn. And we're going to walk in detail um, in these principles next week. There are two places, I think, are Christ followers in January 2023 that I want to point out that I think are really important this morning as we finish up. One of the easy accesses of false teaching into the church are Christian fiction books. Books like The Shack. And I recognize that that may get up in your gander that i'm going to talk about the shack that you've read the book or you've watched the movie but that's heresy the bible reveals god as god the father y'all y'all do it with me he's god who god the god the the book the shack presents two persons of the trinity as women i'm pro woman I was a missionary in Germany when that book came out. A friend of mine came through, and I was shocked that my friend came through and said, you've got to read this book and hand me this book called The Shack. I'm like, what is this? I barely got into it and went, what is going on in America? So here's the deal. That book was on the bestseller list at Mardell. They continued to put it up, Mardell did because Mardell didn't have conviction for about eight years. Teaching things about the Trinity that the Bible doesn't reveal. I have a relationship with someone that lives in our area that I've been trying to get to the church for years. Do you know why they won't come? Because of my stance on the shack. They know my stance on... Who Jesus is, who he is, and how awesome he is, but they will not step foot in the doors of this church because I am calling them to see God for who he is, not who man wants him to be. And so occasionally I see this person, and if you've been around me for a while, I like to needle, and so I needle are you ready to know the real trinity and come and worship him for as he is revealed in the sacred scripture. So I think that's a, that's a danger entry point. And not all fiction Christian books, by the way, are bad. But some of them are really bad. There's a book a number of years ago called The Circle by Mark Batterson. Bad, not good. Do you remember when the church got caught, all caught up in the prayer of Jabez? That Jabez prayed. That was for Jabez to pray to God. That wasn't for every Christian to do for the end of time. Prayer of Jabez is not bad. We just have to, it just some of these things, we have to have discernment about these things. Here's the last thing this morning. We are seeing this more and more and more and more and more today, and it's the redefinition of words. And it's drifting into the church. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, so this is a response question. Do you know what response questions are? You, You answer back. Do you know what the word of the year was last year in 2022? The word woman, woman. You know why, right? Because we had a Supreme Court justice candidate that was asked, what is a woman? And she couldn't define what a woman is. We had professors trying to define it, and our culture is confused on what a woman is. That is not a confusing question. But that was the word of the year last year, woman. And I want to present to you this morning that I think this is going to continue to happen. There's going to be the adaptation of words and their meaning that will continue to be the case. And listen, the culture is going to do that. They're just going to do that. So let's just have wisdom that they're going to do that and not not by into what they are pushing us to embrace. This is what a confused world does. And we are the beloved of God, called to contend for the gospel that was delivered once for all, one set of teaching, one book, one revelation. One God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Father of all. And that's where we make our stand. Right there. All right, that's enough. We'll get into this next week. Let's pray.